0: Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read. I'm writing this from my mother's apartment. It's called Orange. All I could think about was being written into her life story. She made up a story. About what it. Was, it was the inspiration all. for the story? My story is called Cigarettes. What was the genesis? I, mm-hmm. perhaps I used to be almost you? dependent Dear B. on a voice. In a poem I want to talk to you, <laughs> <laughs> and the conversation starts. Hello, and welcome to Off the Page, a podcast of stories, essays, and poetry from the Stanford University writing community. In each episode, a Stanford author will read a piece of their writing and then talk to us about their craft and process. I'm Mark Lobowski, Jones lecturer in the Creative Writing Program. In this episode, Keith Ickes will read a selection of recent poems. Keith Ekus was a Stegner Fellow in Poetry at Stanford from 2005 to 2007. He's the author of Pima Road Notebook and translator of The Fire's Journey by Eunice Odio, forthcoming in four volumes from Tavern Books, and Territory of Dawn, the selected poems of Eunice Odio. He is the recipient of scholarships and residencies from the Breadloaf and Squaw Valley Writers' Conferences, Santa Fe Art Institute, Malay Colony for the Arts and the Petrified Forest National Park. His creative nonfiction has been anthologized in permanent vacation, living and working in our national parks. He is a Jones Lecturer at Stanford. Infant Phrenology Hello, world.
1: Hello, animal. Here's the real undinal vast belly, fortune teller's ball concealing our future womb stranger the bundle the bun the solved equation the medicine the talcum the myconium mind the fontanelle the smallest hand built for your hand the magic number turning the couplet into three solid as the legs of a milking stool birth prepares a face for the breast nose pushed up tongue untied testing your weather for a nipple His mouth cries, and just like that, it's laughter. Soundings meant for you alone to hear. Baby things, the songs we never thought we'd sing. Birthmark. The mark that means your mother wished for wine, spilled across a cheek like the boot of Italy. The spot that says she tasted beets, smashed apple, stork nip, angel spit. A stain there to remind us were made of blood, scar of a prior life, blemish to shine, flash, burn. Did she crave strawberries, startle and touch her face? Did she stare at mice, a finger pressed to her temple when the moon passed before the sun? Demon sign, sign of fortune, on the left cheek, ruin, on the right, a happy marriage. Child-rearing. In the days of first breath, the newborn breeds a rash, and since the fact of parenthood is now permanent, you phone your mother for advice, a gift you think you're giving of her own expertise, a chance to take part. But when she claims she's got no idea what to do, Can't recall, that was nearly 40 years ago, and if she could remember now what she did for your skin, no doubt today the medicine would be different, totally opposed, even, to a cream she might have applied with such care, back then, leaning over the crib, and no real grave concern. Boy. He mimics and drinks ungodly volumes of milk. Again, again, he cries, to hear the book about a dog who plays the flute, laughing like a drunk at jokes he doesn't get. He overhears the rain like a conversation, and murmurs to himself, not like a lonely man, but one amused by genius. He doesn't know heaven or death, too young for hummingbirds, too old to swaddle like a mummy. Words appear in his mouth from the air. He's got no reason to believe a dog can't speak. Early Stages for the New Parents Here comes the red wagon loaded with tears. You can't say tears, but you're not deaf, and so you'll hear tears waterboarding your heart in the hours you once called the drunkest. But you're sober as a map, your steady hand ready to sail the ship to calm. Here comes the lightning, here comes the lullaby jazz. If you ever try to steal away, the child's spirit, a mixture of kerosene and laughter, follows you to the dark side of the bar, where hustlers wait with urgy stories to share about their parents, dear old mom and dad, and the awful things, once upon a time, they did to them. Pretty packages perfectly packed. Done with chintz and tinsel, unwrapping my brother's gift of a plastic toy blaster, my son stalks hydrangeas, genteel blue in midsummer, today corpse gray. It's Christmas Day. Shadows levitate and pop like balloons at his footfall. Don't wake the dragon flowers. Should I teach him to hunt, to flush, fell? Skin and dress, should I melt all replicas? Liberal worries, you think. I aim to serve the meat on the platter in its juices. While he saves the citizens, only he imagines need him. You're a reader. You've read the news. My son is four. What he knows is the world spins wildly, and gravity keeps the grass in place. This next poem is called Nightly Ritual. At a certain point, all children have their imaginary friends, and so one of his imaginary friends makes a guest appearance in this poem. Nightly Ritual Nothing under the bed, never a dragon or the hands of a dead man. One night I linger and sing my child into slumberland, the next I plot my quickest escape. Ears want stories and lips want kisses until the night he wipes mine off his cheek. When I leave the room, fear flips to laughter. He entertains midnight visits from Mayor Fox, who lives in a charming home, swimming pool, garden, friends who never leave. He's built a private menagerie of talking giraffes and lightning-fast squirrels, stuffed, loyal dogs. Darkness equals the unknown, a father engaged in treason, sipping bubbles from a glass, leaning in toward his mother, "'sharing a potion the boy knows he's forbidden to drink. "'Polar Bear Express. "'The boy won't fall asleep without books, "'pictures before bed of polar bears "'who never leave a scent of blood against the ice, "'watered-down tales of jolly rotten pirates setting sail. "'The cannons shoot coconuts. "'If there's a pistol, it's polished, and never pointed at a slave. A hand, a shove, she pushed me first. Scarred knees, written report. Every night I read with attention, skipping over soldiers and kill. I censor, I form a human shield, I leave whole cities unburned. Imaginary Child When I ask my five-year-old about infinity, he pauses from a puzzle long enough to say, my sister's waiting there. In one version of the story, we split. She wants to try again for a daughter. I admit to an irrational fear of twins and can't decide if the proposed girl exists as a gift of light-made flesh or a pile of laundry and tears. We should have started earlier. We should have had another child. Once you add a line... The triangle turns square. She could have perfected my scowl, spent hours on the living room floor, drawing the proverbial unicorn. Nicknames drift into space. Shaggy pants, curly button, puddle wump. I'm too old for milk and puke. Fists of hair and why won't anyone in this house just put on their clothes? Knock-kneed jitterbug, balloon enthusiast. One quick scrawl across a vacant lot. No daughter to divide the last effects. That's not fair, that's not fair. He will miss her more than us. This one is called Midnight Alley Fire. Smell of wax, vaguely sacred scent. My son says candles, spots wavering shadows, gestures of puppet theater, flames twitch and snip as elders conspiring before church. I pulled an alarm. It rang like we'd won. A colony of birds sang with lungs of brass. Sirens wailed, much to the boy's delight. Fire trucks arrived bearing a lighted ladder like they didn't want to miss his birthday. We hurried across the empty street, watching the apartment not burn. Room to room, heroes dragged hoses Checking for children of flame. A smell of last rites quieted our days. Ash, if you touched it, left marks of penitence. Almost pillowed and sheeted in black carcinogens, he's free for tomorrows of boutonnieres and heartache. Free to hate us, free for joy, rent, and the common unspeakable lusts we are permitted. Morning boredoms, the wrong of it. Learning how to count past twenty. Envoy. My son's an instant saint to bus stop grandmothers who tantalize with sweets. Do you want to see my imitation of a lion? Crouch, leap, roar. Friends instead of threats, a city villaged by trust. What's that you're smoking? He inquires of tentative teens. His tongue is the top of his mind. Here comes brightness, Mr. Sunshine, until the fuel runs out and we pop yogurt and the question machine churns again. Those faces, like mine, hardened inward by their troubles, come alive in new ways and the walls of our personal cities fall down until the driver arrives to carry
0: us all to our destination. Hi, Keith. Hi, Mark. Thank you for being here on Off the Page and sharing your work with us. Thanks for having me. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the project that these poems are a part of or how you see them working together, what they grew out of.
1: Sure. Um, Well, I think I tend to write um, real-life stories, right? Um, So these are poems from things that uh, happened to me. They're poems of... um, Orienting yourself to being a parent. And so the poems I read kind of follow a chronological order from that moment of having this new child and the amazement of that to watching the child child grow older and to be responsible for him and for what he absorbs from the world, which of course is a very scary place.
0: And in one of your introductions, you you mentioned your your child, your son. And so clearly these poems have an autobiographical, element to them is there a, an element that's not autobiographical do you zoom off into to fiction at points
1: no not really no i mean this all happened the, like for instance the poem midnight alley fire uh in our apartment building we had a subletter uh, living beneath us while our friends were um away for a while and he threw a cigarette butt into the um uh garbage can it started this fire which he just happened to see because i was up taking care of him at 4 in the morning and his being up at four in the morning might have saved the building. So um, yeah, a lot of they're really real life things. I think the the imagination in them is more just how things are framed, what's said, how it's said, what's emphasized. There's a way in which I think um, poems are poems reflect how you feel when you're writing the poem as opposed to, how you might have felt about the experience. So to my to my ear, a lot of these poems are a little bit darker than the way I feel about going about my daily parental business.
0: Um, and when you are drawing a poem from life, what is it that you feel when you feel a poem brewing? I mean, sometimes there's like an event, like a fire that you sure. might say, or is it noticing yeah. something? or?
1: Um, It oftentimes, someone once said about poetry that the first line is free. So usually it starts with a line that I don't plan. Um, It's just a a line of words, a phrase appears in my head, and it will have a sound to it, and it will have a rhythm to it, and then I just follow that into the experience. Um, Sometimes things are a little bit more deliberate. So for example, in the first poem I read, Infant Phrenology, that's a deliberate kind of Um, imitation or play off of a very old George Herbert poem called Prayer, probably from the uh, early 17th century, I believe. Um, So I was kind of just imitating that poem, doing a list, but trying to make it um, into something new. So this list of all the things that you experience when a child is born, the fontanelle, um, the the Myconium, things like that.
0: And uh these these poems that you read are, dare I say perhaps going into book number two?
1: Yes, so my first book was about growing up in Arizona and this is my this is my San Francisco book or these are from my San Francisco manuscript. So I moved up to the Bay Area in 1994. So I was living here for about, I don't know, um, 15 plus years before starting to write any San Francisco poems. So I think in some ways the poems are, to a certain extent an elegy or elegiac for a San Francisco that's no longer with us, that's kind of really in the rearview mirror. Um and for the also for the life that I would have been living the way I was when I was in my twenties and early thirties. So
0: and, and also as you point out, there's there's also this this elegy or this this looking back toward the life without a child, the life right. of Staying up late, yes, drinking, and being right. a being a debaucherous yes, bohemian right. artist.
1: Yeah. Now the the day starts at six thirty every day. He gets up at six thirty, so we need to get up pretty close to that. We'll to follow I, along.
0: I'd like to ask. <laughs> I mean, this is this is um, it's it's such a I feel like it's a gendered question when yeah. when uh, women writers are asked how has having a child changed your yeah. work or your sure. practice or your writing. But I I think it's a question that's worth asking all writers. How has yeah. Being a parent, sure.
1: I think I think all writers go through changes, and you you have to figure out how to do the work based on your life. So most writers, and I think it's tougher for fiction writers, go through periods where like, oh, I was in an MFA program, and it was great because I had lots of time. Maybe I had lots of time my first year, but the second year I was teaching, all of a sudden I didn't have so much time. Then I was. I went into a forty hour a week job, and I worked a little bit in the mornings or a little bit, you know, on the weekends. I then came to Stanford as a Stegner fellow, had all the kind of time in the world. And now, having a child, you just you so you just learn, you adapt. you you know you know that you're gonna have to squeeze things in. I think you write a little bit more quickly. if you get an idea, you tend to go with it. So, for example, you know, the three of us—my wife Robin, myself, and my son—will be maybe getting ready to go out and do something. And if I get an idea, I'll just say, "I need 15 minutes," and then I'll just go and at least start a little draft of something that I com- could come back to later. There- there's always time; you can always make it work.
0: Yeah, well, if the. the... The amount of time someone can sort of expand and contract yeah. depending on how much it exists, right? right. Um, when you when you have all the time in the world, you need to like get your special <laughs> pencil right. and meditate, have yes. the right tea. You have you get you get very precious, <laughs> yeah. Um, and your wife is also she's a poet, a
1: poet right? Robin was a St- uh, Stegner fellow here at Stanford from two thousand two to two thousand four, and um, so she yes she still works on her poetry. Um, and yeah, you just you just trade off and you, you find ways to make it work.
0: You have someone who understands what it means when That's you say, right. I need yes. 15 minutes really, with this that line. That
1: really helps as well. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, I'd love to talk about endings. Um, sure. I was struck by a number of the ending lines of these poems. I'm thinking of the end of infant phrenology, um, songs we never thought we'd sing, uh, the ending of Imaginary child, he will he will miss her more than us, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, envoy um, carry us all mm-hmm. to our destination. Yeah. I guess I'm just wondering, in general, um, how how you get to an ending of a poem, or sure. or what what an ending feels like to you.
1: I think endings feel like endings somehow. <laughs> somehow. Somehow you recognize it, and if it if it doesn't feel right, it can't end. I think you're you're constantly looking for that ending. You know, there's a lot of um, Poets like to talk about open-ended endings or not having closure. But to me, I mean, the poem ends. When the word ends, it ends. And so you have to kind of think about that. And you want it to have a certain kind of feel, hopefully a different feel. The poems that you mentioned, I think for those, there can be a way in which something that appears very literal in a poem can actually have some metaphorical resonance. So songs we, you know, the songs we never thought we'd sing, it has a literal aspect to it, like songs that you would sing to a child. But I hope that it has a little bit more of also a kind of metaphorical resonance to it, that it's just all kinds of things that having a child brings you back to.
0: I think that that quality in an ending is, is something that the fiction writer also looks for, is you want that ending that doesn't sound... Overly weighted with meaning yeah. that has a has an organic literal meaning, but then has this kind of nimbus around it right. yeah, that you, could suggest other things. You wanted
1: to resonate a little bit,
0: but I thought also I thought with the ending to Imaginary Child that uh, when I read that poem, that line I think tilted me in a new direction. Maybe that's more an example of the open yeah. ending. Like yeah. I hadn't thought the poem would be about the the son's relationship to this potential yeah. child um,
1: yeah there's not a there's not a great um, that's not a poem that ends with a great summation or things kind of chiming together it's more like oh here's this little afterthought it's a little bit of a kind of just like when a song might end on a note that's slightly off instead of resolving the key so you know you want you want poems to end in different ways you don't want to keep doing the same thing so yeah that ha- that does have a different feel to it I think
0: you mentioned doing uh, some research for Birthmark. Oh, yeah. Um, does research often play a role in these sort of autobiographical or or life-inspired not, poems? Not in the
1: life-inspired poems. In, in my first book, Pima Road Notebook, I did a lot of research. So I, I grew up in Arizona right next to the Salt River, um, Pima Maricopa Reservation. And so I had to do a lot of research to figure out what was the the history of the Pima, because I wanted to incorporate that into writing a book about Arizona. That felt important. A little bit less so in the poems that I'm working on in San Francisco. They're more present tense based, or they're based on experience so that I kind of know what happened. There's a little little less of the research. Um, There's one I didn't read called Burial Fragments, which is about... Um, Buena Vista Park in the hate. So if you go to Buena Vista Park and you uh, walk up the path, up the hill, you'll see these gutters that are made of marble. And the gutters um, were created from headstones back in the 1940s when San Francisco got rid of its cemeteries. They dug up the bodies, shipped the body to Colma, and then because they wanted to be you know, very thrifty with what they were doing, they took the headstones, busted them up, and then use them to for various places in San Francisco, but in the in the uh, gutters at Buena Vista Park. So that required a little bit of research to kind of learn about that. There's some research, but it's mostly personal experience.
0: Uh, you're also a translator. Mm-hmm. Um, does that play? How does that? How does that influence the your own poetry? You know, I think
1: I think there are some poets who translate poems that they feel complement what they are already doing in English. Um, An example, in the the late 1970s, there was this uh, Cesare Pavese craze. There was this Italian poet, Cesare Pavese. He was a translator and a professor of American literature in Italy. And he wrote poems in Italian that, when translated into English, really made him sound like an American poet. And people just really gravitated toward that. That's that's not what I do as a translator. The, the main poet I translate, Eunice Odio, uh, who was born in Costa Rica early in the 20th century, died in 1974. She sounds nothing like me, sounds nothing like what I do. So it feels like a kind of expansive thing where I can step into somebody else's vision of the world. And so far, you know, after translating her for 15 years or so, it hasn't influenced my poetry in a direct way, I think if I wanted to kind of try and sound like her, I could, I could do it. But it's not something I've done.
0: More of an yeah. alter ego. Yeah,
1: it's like an alter ego. It's just the, the 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 fun and the thrill of being able to step into something very different than what you do, and also very different than what you're probably used to hearing in English language translations.
0: So this yeah. um, the book you're working on now. Um, these poems are, are a, a smaller part of it. Yes, um, and it's going to be both a, a look at at parenthood and also at yeah, San, the changing. There's there's poems about the changing in San
1: Francisco. Um, poems that are kind of, you know, as, as my friend said, they're kind of flaneur poems, wandering around the city, seeing different things. There's poems about having aging parents. Um, it's it's a mixture of things. Yeah.
0: I think um, something else I really took away from these poems was just this this very, I think, common parental fear of, like, how much can you protect your child from pain Um, when you when you write about um, reading these stories of sort of pretend violence um, and then thinking about real violence in the world or or censoring or or redacting the stories that you do read. I I just um, I really feel that 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 fear and. It's anxiety. all about
1: when, right? You're you're going to have to expose your child to these things eventually. It's just a matter of when. And some people will be like, "You got to tell him now when he's five. You need to start telling him these bad things." I'm like, uh, I don't think so. It feels too early. Let's let's let him get a few more years. I, I want to preserve the innocence as long as long as I can. And at a certain point, though, it's, I mean it's already happened. You start to have to have conversations about about real world things. Um, but you can you could ease your child into it i think
0: and you also do i think a beautiful job of capturing that that innocence and that way that kids have of sort of being really flexible with reality <laughs> yes. and 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 having this really <laughs> porous fantasy life and kind of beguiling strangers i right. mean i i feel like that would be a beautiful thing to move through the world with
1: yeah especially when he was younger when he was like 2 or 3 he was really just just the goodwill ambassador, you know, random strangers in, in a way that was always positive. I, I was worried that it would be something that could occasionally be negative, but it never felt that way. Strangers would just come up to you and start talking, and it just breaks down these walls. Now that he's a little older, he's eight now. It doesn't happen quite so, so much.
0: <laughs> well, there's that line in one poem about the first time he wipes away – uh, yeah, right. And I thought, oh, no, yes. it's the beginning of the end. <laughs> right, right.
1: So, yeah. And that's something like in the poem, it probably comes off as, as more serious than I would think about it in real life. Again, going back to the poem, kind of, you know, the emotion takes over as you're, as you're writing it. But he's just like, you're too scratchy. You need to shave. <laughs> you know,
0: so. Well, yeah, actually, maybe just to return to that idea um, about the poem taking over and, and the relationship between the poem and real life. Um so there are times when you feel like the, the the language is sort of creating maybe a different experience yeah. than how you would actually describe the real world often, I think that's often
1: the case. I think that the, the language and the writing of the poem leads you into a different emotion. When I first started writing poetry, I always wanted to recreate an experience. I thought, oh, this thing happened to me. Now I want to recreate it in a poem. And it just never works. So I think I've kind of just... Given up on that. You 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 get the first line. You have something you want to write toward, and then you just get used to letting it go where it wants to go, and being a little hands off even with your own with your own creation. And when the poems go to those dark spaces, sometimes you just kind of say, "Okay, you know."
0: Will uh, Brewer was quoting Ivan Bolin as saying that the poem is not a good vehicle for expression, but a good vehicle for experience that that the poem is sort of trying to create its own emotional yeah. experience versus trying to necessarily preserve yeah, I think, a prior experience. I think I
1: think you just it just can't do it, unfortunately. Even that even though that may be what um, drives us to begin a poem or a story, some event that happens to us that's deeply personal. But then it inevitably gets transformed, which is probably why, you know, poets, poetic license, we do oftentimes shuffle things around. Um, You know, that happens here and there in my poems. But generally speaking, I don't I don't go for wholesale invention or I haven't yet anyway.
0: Off the page is produced by the stanford storytelling project and the creative writing program thanks to our lead producer jackson roach and assistant producers alec glassford aparna verma sienna white aaron wu kathy wong and adesua agbenau thanks also to jonah willingans thanks to Ivan bolin christina Ablaza, and osay jackson at the creative writing program for their generous support to the stanford storytelling project we'd like to thank the vice provost for undergraduate education Stanford Arts, and Bruce Brayden. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. For more Stanford writing, author events, and workshops, visit creativewriting.stanford.edu and storytelling.stanford.edu. I'm Mark Lebowski. Thanks for listening.